Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we are entering the home stretch as we work through this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and today we begin chapter 7. Before we start with this passage for today, though, I actually want to jump to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount and read a couple of verses there to help us understand where we're going, and it also helps inform kind of where we're at right now. So when you get to Matthew chapter 7, look at the very last two verses of the chapter. It is verses 28 and 29. And here's what we read. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, when Jesus is teaching the disciples, and remember, he's got the disciples gathered right around him, and then all around is thousands of other people. There's the religious leaders. There's the, the common people that have come just to see Jesus and hear him teach. But as they are hearing him teach, they are hearing him teach with a unique authority. Um, up to this point, anytime there's religious teaching that takes place, it comes exclusively from the religious leaders. He had to be educated. He had to be trained in order to teach about anything religious. Uh, John the Baptist was deemed a nut job and a heretic because he was teaching, he was, he was preaching apart from education and apart from the stamp of approval by the religious leaders. You see, the religious leaders based their authority in the Old Testament law. The law was their authority, and they took a whole lot of liberty with that law. And in fact, they would, they would add to it, and it made their teaching very legalistic. But then Jesus comes along, and he teaches as one who has different authority. Uh, his authority comes from God. It doesn't come from the law. So when Jesus teaches, it's clear that he is God's spokesperson, the law is not his authority. God is his authority, and it comes across in the way that Jesus teaches and preaches. And the result of Jesus' teaching is that the people are astonished at his teaching. Astonished at his teaching. That's the, the word astonished is the Greek word exaplacento. Um, and very, very simply, if we were to put this in a vernacular that we would understand, it means that Jesus had struck a blow at their heart. He had, he had cut them to the core of who they are. They were impacted beyond imagination. Jesus had, in just a, a matter of moments, now it was a long sermon, but it was still a matter of moments in teaching this Sermon on the Mount, he had cut them to the very core of who they were. They were astonished. They were cut. And really, they were cut because of the reality that the righteousness that they thought was sufficient for salvation was not, in fact, sufficient. They're falling far short. That's what Jesus has shown them. And honestly, that's what Jesus shows us. He peels back the layers of our lives to show us that the righteousness that we build for ourselves doesn't do a thing to meet God's standard. And that Jesus and his righteousness are the only way to meet God's standard. He specializes in striking that blow to our hearts, and he strikes a blow to all the righteousness that we think we build up for ourselves. But y'all listen and hear me on this. If Jesus does not strike a blow to our hearts, there is no way that we enter into heaven. You see, in order for us to have a relationship with God, he has got to cut us to the very core of who we are. And that's what he does here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he continues to do even now with us many, many, many years later. Today's passage, we get to, um, to really this, this idea of us being inadequate on our own. It just continues on. 
Jesus shows us once again that um, the standard in the past is not the standard now moving forward. So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, okay? I'm going to invite you to join along with me in your reading uh, of your Bible as I start in, in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, before we jump into this, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he reveal his word to us and also reveal how we are to apply it. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, as I come to you today, I know without a doubt that um, I am inadequate of communicating your word and doing it justice. And that is why we so desperately need your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word and your will to our hearts and our minds. Father, would you take what we learned today and would you apply it to our lives? And Father, we ask that in all things that we do today, whether it's the singing, the preaching, the scripture reading, the prayer, all of it, the interaction with each, with each other as believers, that it will all be to your glory. Father, hide us behind the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, would you be, be preeminent in everything? Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Very first words there. Don't judge. He says, judge not. It's a present imperative, meaning that it doesn't matter if you have um, you are actively engaged right now in being judgmental of someone, or if a situation comes along in which you are tempted to be judgmental, he says, don't do it. Either stop it or don't do it, depending on the context. Now, being judgmental, as Jesus is talking about it here, means this. It is applying a standard to other people that you don't want applied to yourself. That's the context of what's being talked about here. So if you want to write that, that, that statement down just to help kind of come back to it as we work through this, then that would be great. But it's applying a standard to other people that you don't want applied to yourself. You see, a judgmental person thinks that other people should do such and such. They're always thinking about what other people should do. And they often don't take an introspective look at themselves at what they should do or should not do. Now, before you write off the rest of the sermon saying, oh, I don't, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a judgmental person, <laughs> let, me, let me pause you there for a second, okay, and say, I believe that there is at least a hint of judgmentalism in every single one of us. And at the very, at the very least, at the very least, all of us need the reminder that loving other people, and especially loving other believers, should dominate our lives, and that's one of the things we're going to find as we work through this. Jesus calls us to love one another. In fact, John 13, 35, we, we find Jesus saying this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How are they going to know? If you have love for one another. It's our love for each other as Christians that shows other people that we are Jesus' disciples. And as we approach this, this topic today, I think it's really important for us to realize that Christians should be known more for their love for other people than for the severity with which they judge other people. 
And I'm going to say that again because a lot of times we get hung up on this, okay? And we don't think about it this simply. But I believe that Christians should be known more for their love for other people than for the severity which with, they, with, with which they judge other people. The message from Jesus applies to every single one of us because we're all prone to a spirit of judgmentalism over a spirit of love. We choose the heart of suspicion over the heart of trust. And Jesus is about to show us how that goes against the purpose of, of, of God's kingdom. Now, as we talk through this, uh, work through this passage, I want to I show us how futile uh, judgmental spirit is, okay? I've got three things that you can fill in the blanks as we work through the notes here. First of all, in talking about the futility of a judgmental spirit, it is foolish. It is foolish. Verses 1 through 2, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus starts off there with the words, judge not that you be not judged. He gives a rationale then why we shouldn't judge. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, it is foolish for you to have a judgmental spirit because that same spirit that you use to judge other people is going to be the way that, jo- that God judges you. Now, all of a sudden, this gets really scary. If I'm being completely honest with myself, this gets really scary, especially in the role that I have as a pastor and looking at the context in which Jesus is speaking here. In this Sermon on the Mount, there is this constant indictment against the religious leaders of the day for the way that they have so mishandled God's law. The religious leaders would judge other people as if they themselves were really good people, if not perfect people. I don't have any sin, so I can say whatever I want to. I'm a perfect person because I do this and this and this and this, so I can say whatever I want to. I can judge you in any way I want They thought that they're somehow better than everybody else and that that superiority gave them a right to enact judgment on people who didn't quite meet their level of excellence. Jesus says here that God's going to judge according to the type of judgment with which we judge other people, which means a person with a judgmental spirit constantly looks for ways to judge other people. That was these religious leaders and God's going to judge them based on how they judge other people. I think about Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And here's what Paul says there. He says, therefore, you've got no, no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words... As you judge other people, God is going to judge you for what you're doing. And it's foolish, foolish to have a judgmental spirit because all you're doing is condemning yourself. You see, the judgmental person who is harsh with others is going to in turn be dealt harshly with by God. But get this, the person who shows great mercy and shows great grace to other people will in turn be shown great mercy and great grace by God. That's how this thing works. One of my grandmothers has a picture um, in her house of 
two old-looking monkeys, and you can kind of tell they're old just because they're really, really wrinkled, and monkeys are kind of wrinkled anyway, but they got really gray hair, and they're sitting there with a straw in their mouth, kind of like you could just imagine two older men sitting around, straw in their mouth, and, and there's a caption with this picture that says, those who think they know everything are annoying to those of us who do. <laughs> you know, I... I, I Never forgotten that because she's had it from the time I was a, a little kid, and I see it every single time I go in her house. It's in a very, very prominent place in her house. But if you really think about it, that's a whole lot of people in our world, and that's a lot of people in our churches. People who act like they've got all the answers, and they show no mercy to those who sin periodically or who make questionable decisions. There's no mercy or grace shown to them. And what Jesus is saying is, do you not realize how foolish you are by being judgmental? So how about showing grace to others instead of harshness? Continuing on, a judgmental spirit is also futile because it's prideful. It's prideful. Verses 3 and 4 read like this. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? What Jesus says here about the speck and the log is really kind of familiar to us because we've heard it many, many times. But if you think about the people who were listening to Jesus in Jesus' day, this would have been just surprising to them to think about this. All right, think about the, the speck, just a little tiny piece of trash, right? It, it's, it's, the, it's a piece of trash that is so small that it's even hard to see. Now, that's not to say that it's not noticeable, but it's hard to see. I'm sure that, that at some point in your life, because this is all of us, we've gotten something in our eye that we just can't see, but yet it, it irritates the eye. The eye gets red and starts to water. Everybody else been there before? You've got to have somebody else to see whatever that is and help, help get it out. You see, the issue is very, very real. In fact, the sin that is in that person's life is very real. We're not negating that at all. But the issue that Jesus has here is that you are looking at the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. And this word log, if you really go back and you look at the origination of the word, it's clear that what Jesus is talking about is, is a main beam of a building. All right, so if you look up, I mean, everybody look up here. This is some really, really big beams holding this roof up, isn't it? Yeah? But this is the idea that Jesus has here is that it's, a, it's the beam that, that helps support a building. That's the, the contrast he's making here. Yeah, the speck is in somebody's eye, but, but listen, you got a log, a beam in your own eye. The log is a really big deal. The sin in this person's life has become so normal to them that they're desensitized and they're blind to their sin. They may be sensitive to see the speck in somebody else's life, but there's no reality of their own sin. So for this person, their pride is saying, you know what, your sin is a really big deal, but mine's insignificant. And you know what, it may not be a big sin that everybody can see, but it's a big deal to God. And we're not being sensitive to that sin. That's what Jesus is talking about with that log in our eye. This is the epitome of pride, saying your sin's a big deal, but mine, no, nah, not so much. 
But then also a judgmental spirit is hypocritical. It's hypocritical. Verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I love it. I absolutely love it when Jesus gets passionate like this. And I can just imagine him saying, you hypocrite, right? Just really getting passionate with, you hypocrite. Dr. Danny Aiken makes the point, he says, inspection of others without introspection of myself is the road to playing the hypocrite. Inspection of others without introspection of myself is the road to playing the hypocrite. As I was thinking this week about examples throughout the Bible that we find of, of, um, of the hypocrite, I thought about King David. David saw something in Bathsheba that he didn't already have, and he wanted her. And so he committed adultery, and eventually he murdered her husband to make sure that he could always have what he wanted. The prophet Nathan enters into the picture, and instead of confronting David head on, Nathan tells David a parable. He tells about this poor farmer who had one little lamb that he loved very, very much. And this lamb, though, was stolen by a rich farmer who had many lambs. He could have chosen any lamb that he had for the feast that he was preparing. But no, he chose the poor man's lamb. Well, David's captivated by this story, and his response is one of wrath and and anger against the rich farmer. Tell me who this is. This is the log in David's eye moment. He's ready to kill the rich farmer for the speck in his eye when David has a log in his own eye. We then find Nathan, and he reveals that David himself is that rich farmer who took another man's wife. And David becomes a broken, a repentant man once his sin has found him out. The reason I bring this story up is because of how well it illustrates what we're talking about here and this idea of the log and the speck. You see, David's ready to blast the dude with a speck in his eye when he was the one with the massive log in his own eye. And listen to me, David is not alone in this. In fact, how many times do you react in anger against another person without taking an introspective look first to see, is there any sin in my life before I go to point out that person's sin? Or you look at somebody else's sin as being a lot bigger than your own. The American church as a whole has a really bad habit of judging the girl who gets pregnant outside of marriage, yet oftentimes the very people who condemn that girl ignore their sin of lust or lack of self-control in other areas. Or what about this? We see on, uh, we see on the news that somebody was abusive or somebody murdered another person, and we react with anger towards that person while never thinking about the sin of anger that we have towards our spouse or towards our kids that goes unchecked. I'm convinced that some of the biggest hypocrites in the world are in the Bible Belt of the United States. And they're hypocrites because they refuse to take an honest look at themselves and at the sin that they get so easily caught up in. We're so eager to point out somebody else's sin. We're so eager to talk behind their back and say, did you know what that person did? Without ever looking inside of us and saying, and realizing, realizing that we are just as much a sinner as the other person is. The church has a horrible reputation when it comes to this. And church, may it never ever be said of Salem Baptist Church 
that there are people in our church who are quick to point out somebody else's sin, but not willing to deal with their own sin. There's two words in this, in this passage that got to be really clearly understood. It's the words, see clearly. See clearly. Look at that. It says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Some time ago, one of my brothers had a major injury to his eye in which he had to have major surgery to, um, to remove a piece of metal that had actually been shot into his eye by a piece of machinery. Um, and, uh, and, and when that happened, he couldn't see clearly. And even now, it's been over a year since it happened, doctors are still working with him to help him um, in, increase his, his vision and try to get him, his, his vision back. He isn't able to see clearly because there's something that, that, that blocked him from being able to see clearly. Spiritually speaking, you cannot see clearly when there is an issue with your spiritual eyes. Sin distorts reality and, and sin blinds us to the truth. So get rid of the hypocrisy of acting like you got it all together and deal with your own sin, Jesus says, before you go and attempt to help somebody else with theirs. You see, a judgmental spirit comes when we are blind to our own sin. It comes because we're not willing to show mercy and grace to other people. We're not willing to love them the way that Christ loves them. And when we look at other people who have some level of sin in their lives, we look through eyes of sin rather than eyes of holiness, and it's going to lead to hurt, and it's going to lead to animosity every single time. We don't have a right to speak about somebody else's sin until we've dealt with our own sin. Charles Spurgeon once made the comment, he said, after we, ourselves, after we are ourselves sanctified, we are bound to be eyes to the blind and correctors of holy living, but not till then. And here's how this is supposed to work. A Christian seeks to live a holy life and to get rid of their own sin. To repent of that sin means that you turn away from it, but you don't, also, you don't only turn away from it, you reject it completely. So when it tempts you in the future, you continue to reject it and push it back. That's true repentance, okay? Turning away from sin. So that's where it starts. However, once we've dealt with our sin, then we are to judge that which is wicked. Jesus is not condemning us judging here. He's condemning the way we do it. Once we do, we've, we've gotten rid of the sin in our lives. Yes, then we are to look at the sin and, and judge it as wicked. Now, we think about a judge, and we think about a judge sitting in a courtroom, and he hands down a condemnation to a, to a prisoner, someone who's done something. All right, now you're going to go spend such and such amount of time in, in jail, okay? That's oftentimes the context with which we think about the word judge. But I want you to, to kind of shift your thinking here for a moment to, instead of thinking in that context, think about the idea of discernment, okay? Of discernment. When you are judging, you are discerning what is right. You are discerning what is wrong. We are to be Christians who can discern and who can guard against wickedness. Look at verse 6 with me. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is a really tough verse here that Jesus gives us, because he's calling his followers to do something that's not always easy. 
There's two types of animals that are referenced there, okay? There's the dog and there's the pig. And both of these are animals that are hated. They're not necessarily clean considered by the Hebrews. When a person gives anything to a dog, I mean anything. It could be a piece of meat. It could be a toy. It could be a bone. No matter what it is, what's that dog going to do with it? He's going to chew it up and he's going to tear it up. A pig... When they are in their pen, they don't really care about what's in that pig in that pen. They are going to do everything they can to be dirty. Right? A pig is just dirty. Pigs, excuse me, dogs devour the truth and pigs trample it. And then on top of all of that, the one who shared the truth is brutally attacked. You see, the pig doesn't care about the fine things. They don't care about keeping clean. In fact, the the dirtier, the better for the pig. So if you give a pig something that is precious without them first being taken out of the pig pen, then that precious thing is going to be lost. The Bible is really, really clear here that in this world, Christians are going to face persecution. We're going to face hardships. But in light of this passage, we have no less responsibility to share the gospel with the people that we come in contact with. But... This is where Jesus inserts a really big deal here. When the Apostle Paul shared the gospel in Acts chapter 18 and the people rejected it, what did he do? He wiped his hands clean of them and he moved on to other people who were receptive, trusting the Holy Spirit to deal with the people who had rejected the truth. You see, the waste of the pearls is in Christians spending so much time on one person or maybe on a couple of people who continually reject the gospel that we miss opportunities to share the gospel with others who are lost, yet who are receptive. I know of different people, even people here in our church, who have prayed for many, many years for family members or for friends to come to know Jesus, but over and over again when they share the gospel with it, with those people, uh, the gospel's rejected. There comes a point at which the only one who has the ability to penetrate a hard heart is the Holy Spirit. And trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to work on that person, those Christians have had to take a step back. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about letting those hard hearts be dealt with by the Holy Spirit. That's a hard thing for us to hear because we love this family member so much. We want to see them come to know Jesus. And and, and what Jesus is not saying here is forget about them. No, continue to pray. Continue to share the gospel. But don't spend so much time on them that you're throwing your pearls out where they're going to be wasted. Go somewhere else to somebody else who's receptive to the gospel. I want to make a couple of, of points here, just kind of wrapping all of this up, okay? And these are application points that I want to encourage you to write down or take a picture of so that you can come back and reflect on these later, all right? Number one, a judgmental spirit must be dealt with between the Christian and God. That judgmental spirit must be dealt with between the Christian and God. David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba. He prayed for a clean heart. God exposed the sin in me. Expose any wickedness I have in me. And that is what a Christian has to do. Because we don't always see our sin. We become blind to it. We don't even know it's there sometimes. But when we ask God to expose it to us, he will. His Holy Spirit will show it to us. So number one, 
must be dealt with between a Christian and God. Number two, do the work of genuine repentance. It's worth it. Do the work of genuine repentance. It's worth it. Genuine repentance is not just a, I'm sorry. In my house, we've got, um, we've got, I mean, it's typical kids, right? Where somebody does something against somebody else and it's, I'm sorry, and they take off running somewhere else. Well, were they genuinely sorry? No. And that's where we teach what genuine repentance looks like. But the same thing applies to God. If we just simply say, oh God, I'm sorry, and we never think about it again, we don't grieve that sin, we don't in turn fill our minds with holiness, with God's word, then it's going to come up over and over and over again. It is worth it, though, to fight against sin, to genuinely repent. Number three, be willing to release truth deniers to the work of the Holy Spirit. Be willing to release truth deniers to the work of the Holy Spirit. A couple of promises that I think of in God's Word that absolutely speak to this. Number one, we know that God's Word is never going to return void. The the truth of God's Word will come back into a person's mind over and over again. Number two, we know without a doubt that God is continually drawing all men to himself and that he uses the Holy Spirit to do so. So the Holy Spirit is continually pulling, pulling, pulling. Now sometimes a heart is so hard that there is never any repentance. Oh, but sometimes God breaks through the hardest of hearts in an incredible way for his glory and for that person's good. Number four, you gotta come back in two weeks to see number four. Because what we're about to talk about here in the Sermon on the Mount is tied together with this. I used to think it was, it, actually up until just a few days ago, thought it was completely separate, but then I realized, wait a minute, God is just, Jesus is just building on himself as he talks about this idea of ask and it will be given. We're gonna talk more about that in two weeks after Easter. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And while you do that, I can't help but think that now would be a great time for you to just simply ask a question of God. And that is this. God, would you expose any sin in my life that needs to be dealt with? A simple question. God, would you expose any sin in my life that needs to be dealt with? And take a moment to reflect. And he may show it to you in this moment. He may show it to you later. I also think that this would be a great opportunity, though, for you to reflect on on your life. Do you have a judgmental spirit? A spirit that says that you can apply a standard to other people that you don't want to apply to yourself. And once again, take some time for introspection. Looking at your heart. And whether it's as we get ready to sing or if it's later today, take some time to reevaluate and recenter your life. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this very strong teaching that Jesus gives us about having a judgmental spirit. Father, help us to deal with the sin in our own lives, to deal with others with grace and mercy and love, 
Father, help us not to be people who are known by the severity of their judgment, but rather, Father, the greatness of the love that we have for other people. Not sweeping sin under the rug because sin always, always has to be dealt with. It's a serious thing. Oh, but God, dealing with the sin in a way that honors you. May we love other people to the same degree that Jesus loved us, that we celebrate and we remember this week of passion, in which Jesus gave everything for us. So may we love others with the same degree that Jesus loves us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.